Welcome to the latest episode of our Devil Talk. This is episode 38. This week I was joined by former Connacht, Sale Sharks, Leinster and Ireland rugby player Bernard Jackman. I spoke to Bernard for around an hour, so I'm going to split this podcast into two parts. In part one, over the next 25 minutes, I speak to Bernard about life post-professional athlete, meeting Sir Alex Ferguson, spending four days at Old Trafford whilst carrying out his thesis, and common behaviours that are necessary to achieve high performance from both a sporting and a business perspective. Before we start, Bernard, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for taking the time. Yeah. Oh, thanks a million. Um, delighted to be asked and looking forward to hopefully having a, a good chat. How's life at the moment? How are you finding lockdown? Um, yeah, I'm like a caged animal. Uh, I'm, um, I'm used to being out and about. Um, so I coach. I still coach. I, um, I'm not coaching professionally at the moment. I'm coaching uh, a local club, Bective, Tuesday, Thursday, you know, um, and then I have been helping my old school Newbridge College to prepare for the senior cup um, which would be a very good level um, but you know so I've gone from being out and about visiting clients as well with my day job you know uh, to being stuck stuck in a in a box room up in the attic uh, from from nine to five uh, every day but look at I'm, I'm lucky I'm still working and uh, I'm getting to do media stuff as well at weekends where um, I either get to go to a match luckily professional rugby is still going ahead or to a studio, for example, this weekend I'm doing uh, Leinster Munster, Munster Leinster from Tolman Park. I'm doing it from the studio in Dublin for Premier Sport. So that that gives you something to look forward to um, anyway. So I, I am pretty lucky. Do you enjoy the media work you do? I have to say, yeah. I watch you on Off the Ball. I think you're an excellent analyst. Oh, thank you, thank you. You have a good mix of, I think, personality and knowledge you come across as very likeable. But I remember Roy Keane said before that whenever he's doing the punditry, he feels like it's beneath him almost. He should be doing more in terms of making an impact in the dressing room or on the pitch. Do you ever feel like that? Um, look, sometimes I, I, I go between um, emotions. So I'll give an example. So I, my last job was the, was the Dragons um, in Wales. And um, province I promised Leinster, the team I had the most years at was Leinster. And um, we came back to play Leinster. I was head coach. And I think we lost you know, 47, 12 or like that. So obviously a very tough defeat to take. And, um, you know, I remember that defeat stayed with me for a long time. Certainly leaving the, the RDS that night, um, I felt it was all my fault. Um, and a year later, I was there commentating on the game for, for air. Same kind of results, you know, 50 points. And, you know, I walked out of the ground without a care in the world. It wasn't my problem anymore. So, you know, so I have different um, viewpoints. And then there's other days, there's other games where, you know, you'd love to be part of it, you know, a, a big win in Europe or an international match and, you, and you'd love to be in that hot seat or, or part of the, the team environment again. So, yeah, I, I can see where Roy's coming from. Um, but certainly for, for me at the moment, from a family point of view and a, and a career point of view, the coaching isn't really something that I, I want to do professionally. Um, I just feel it's very volatile and there's, there's going to be a necessity to travel uh, a lot and, and the age my kids are at and 
And I said, where we're at. So we, we got to spend five years in France, which was phenomenal as a family. And, and it was a great opportunity, but we kind of want to have some stability at the moment. So yeah, whenever I am starting to have what I would say are um, silly thoughts, uh, the reality of, of professional coaching kind of puts me back in my place. I was just about to say that actually touched on it there. The reality of coaching, it's a very unstable job, I guess, in many respects. Yeah, I think uh, actually which, uh, this morning, just on, I'm on a couple of coaches' WhatsApp groups, but a guy called Paul Gustard, who would be highly regarded as a coach, uh, used to be part of England's uh, coaching setup, came through Saracens, was sacked by, by Harlequins uh, this morning. And, you know, it just shows you um, how, how tough it is and, you know, how volatile it is. And, yeah, it's, it's, it's not as bad as soccer, yes, probably because the wages aren't as... Um, or the, the yeah the importance of success and and the focus on it from a social media point of view and fans and maybe player power isn't as strong yet in a in a rugby dressing room or isn't used in that manner. But I think the average head coach lasts I think nineteen months in in rugby. Which again, if you take you know if you've got to move house or move school move your kids' school you know five or six times in in the course of their life, then you know it's not just you that's affected. So um, yeah, it is it's it's a volatile career for sure. In terms of life post-professional rugby player, if you like, obviously you retired in 2010. Was that a transition you had prepared for? Yeah, so I am um, I kind of uh, covered my bets to a certain extent, hedged my bets. So when I left school, um, I went to university in, in DCU and I studied international marketing in Japanese. And um, I ended up, I didn't get to go, I didn't get to finish that course because I, had, I would have had to go to Japan for a year um, and just when I was about to go to Japan for that third year of, of, of my course, I got a professional contract in Connacht. So I changed it to business studies degree. So I kind of had a little bit of, a, of an education in business. And, and that was certainly where I would have would have went um, if I hadn't managed to get so long out of professional rugby. Um, but I also had a real passion for coaching. So while I was playing professionally, I coached my, old, or my home club, which is Tullow. Um, so I was 23 and I was coaching the adults team there um, and then I coached Newbridge Club which would have been a lot of kind of guys I went to school with and then I coached Coolmine and then I coached the school team in Dublin called St. Michael's so I was preparing for, for life after playing with a view to having had a lot of experience coaching and that kind of gave me the, the opportunity then when I interviewed for that job in, in Grenoble in France um, you know I, I could show the, the, the board the people who were interviewing me that this wasn't a you know a knee jerk reaction to finishing playing rugby and, and just looking for a job. I I'd spent uh, ten years uh, preparing for it, so uh, you know I felt that in terms of experience, even though the level I was coaching at wasn't anything like the level I was going to. For me, you know, if you want to be learn your craft, you just got to get stuck into it. So I built up quite a few um, hours coaching hours, which I think is really important. I speak to a number of athletes, and many of them have said that when they retire. I guess that a lot of their sense of self comes from playing sport and then when they retire, it's taken away from them. For you, was it hard to adjust or accept the fact that you were no longer a pro player? No, because I didn't see myself. I, I didn't, I wasn't a child prodigy, you know, it didn't define me. Um, you know, I, I had other interests as well. Uh, you know, I was doing some media work while I played. I'm from farming background. So, you know, um, sweeping out sheds and, 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 Loading, loading hay and stuff is, is a good way of keeping you grounded. I also had done a year as a pharmaceutical rep uh, when I was injured when I was 23. So I knew what the real world was. And, and so I, I was just, the most important thing for me was to, was to attack something else. You know, I think the biggest issue can be when 
you finish something that's obviously highly rewarding, like being a professional athlete or elite athlete in an amateur sport, and you're not busy and you're sitting at home, you know, thinking around where you, you know what should we be doing now if you're still an athlete. Whereas the year I retired, um, I wrote an autobiography, um, and there's a uh, quite a bit of work going into writing that, and then also in terms of promoting it. So you know, you're out and about, you're doing book launches, you're you're going to speak to to media outlets um, to to push the book. Uh, I went back and did a master's in, in exercise, sports and exercise management at UCD. Um, and again, when you haven't been in the education, um, and I know you're going back into education next week, but when I was out of education for 12 years, you know, that's a real challenge to get your mind back into being able to, you know, sit in class, sit in lectures, part of group projects, you know, do a thesis, et cetera. So um, between that, I was coaching the book, and then starting to work in the media, uh, at games, et cetera. I just had so many different stimuluses that, you know, and I, and I wasn't, uh, yeah, I, I know, I didn't have enough time to think about it, to be honest. So I, I got over that pretty quick. And then I got a job in coaching in a new country where, you know, I didn't speak any French at a German in school. So I, the challenge of proving that you're a good coach, being able to look after the area I was responsible for, which is defense, being able to learn a language, make sure your family are settled. It was kind of a, a roller coaster of, of challenges that just kept me from looking back. And, and I think that's really important is, and I, and I actually listened to a podcast that, that I enjoyed There's a guy, Damien Hughes, um, the liquid tinker. He wrote a good book, the Barcelona way. And, and he's got a podcast at the moment. Um, the high performance podcast. They had uh, an English soccer player as a Tyson. Um, but anyway, basically he gets a lot of abuse because he's involved in a lot of business activities. Um, plus he's obviously a, a professional soccer player and, you know, the, the the chat was we need to get away from this mindset of either or. So you're either a professional soccer player or professional player or whatever, or you're something else. Whereas the best place to be is is having a good balance to to what you're into and um, not to be defined by one thing. So he's not defined by one thing, but he gets a lot of. When he says when he plays badly, you know that's the kind of stuff he gets thrown at him on social media. If you concentrated more on your football and less on your business interests or, you know, Rashford and United, if you concentrated more on your football and less on the, um, on the projects you're doing to, you know, put meals on the table for underprivileged kids, et cetera. So it's just, I just thought it was interesting. It definitely fits into how I see it as, um, you know, even just being part of this podcast uh, is, is something great for me to, to get a chat to you and, and to, you know, occupy whatever an hour, an hour and a half of, of my time. And, and uh, I think it's, it's great to have diversity. I think that's so important though, having like a plan B, being yeah. educated, having a degree to fall back on because sport doesn't last forever. No, and the reality is um, we get very well paid as, as rugby players, but bar maybe four or five guys ever to be professional rugby players, they all have to work again. You know, we all have to work again. We don't have a load of houses that we've paid, uh, paid outright or, you know, shares in the bank. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a great living, but... It's at, at 33, 34, if we last till then, you know, we still have to build a career. So I think more planning you can do while you're playing. It can also help you play as well, play better, because if you're so stressed about it, and I, I found this in Wales with, with, the, with the Dragons, is that they wouldn't be as, as well organised in terms of prioritising education. So if you're a good young rugby player in Wales, you'll just focus on rugby, okay? And you won't... You'll drop out of college. Not not everybody. Like I coach doctors in Wales and stuff like that. But 
uh, a generalization would be that they're less focused on preparing for life after rugby while they play. And, you know, some people would say, well, that should make them, you know, more focused, more motivated. You know, it's do or die. You know, it's either perform well or not get another contract and then you've got nothing to fall back on. But I actually found it was the, it was the opposite. The guys like Johnny Sexton or Rob Carney, you know, Rob Carney's got an MBA. Um, you know, Johnny Sexton, I think, is on the second degree. Um, like, they've been very successful in international sport um, at the highest level, but they have spent time with the education. And for guys who aren't, aren't doing education, they're in work placement. So Dan Levy, while he was out with his knee injury, was spending you know two days a week with a aircraft aviation company, just seeing how it all works. So, and I think if you have that balance, you're less likely to have performance anxiety. So I found some of the some of the Welsh guys who were so pressurised into having to only have rugby, it actually worked negatively in that the pressure and the anxiety harmed the performance rather than than, than motivated them, which is kind of an old school principle of uh, you know if you're so desperate. And it's all you have. It's kind of like a boxer mentality. Yeah, it works for boxing or it has worked for boxing, but it's not necessarily the best way forward. Hi, this is Ken Hardy, and you're listening to Red Devil Talk, the podcast with Jimmy Williams. This podcast is brought to you in association with Classic Retro Shirts. Classic Retro Shirts sell a large variety of retro jerseys from a number of clubs and countries and are very prominent on Manchester United. United season ticket holders themselves, giving fans a chance to look back through history. Classic Retro Shirts are on Instagram at Classic Retros 2, or you can visit their website at classicretros.co.uk. To get a £10 discount off your purchase, you can use the code RDT10 at the checkout on the website, or you can send the code via direct message to their Instagram. Classic Retro Shirts. You mentioned earlier that you have a business degree. Personally, I'm fascinated by your thesis, exploring the correlation between high-performance behaviours in sport and in business. I think at a basic level, Without having any real knowledge of this, I would say that the best performers are consistent. I think that's applicable to business. I think it's applicable to sports. So I definitely think there are parallels there. But can you tell me about your thesis and what you found? Yeah, so look, at, I said I went back. I went back to study and I wanted to pick something for my thesis that I was highly interested in. And I've been very lucky. I've been in high-performing teams, low-performing teams. And um, just by being professional didn't mean we, were, we had a good culture or we had... Um, Good behaviors or or we were we were we were living our best lives or whatever so um and then i was part of the leinster team who, who changed so from 2005 till till now they ch- we changed the culture we changed the environment we changed the level of expectation and that started the whole thing going and obviously you know each team added to that um i have an opportunity every year there's an opportunity to add or, or take away from that and, and thankfully they've added to it so um i was part of that i was fascinated with how we changed because it was the same people it was the same talent pool really um but in terms of our leadership in terms of our communication in terms of our attitude in terms of our holding each other to account etc level of expectation we we got far far more exact and, and far more ruthless on that and and i was like okay well look at I've, I've been through this as a player um i've been in bad dressing rooms etc um i wonder what it's like in business you know is it is the same common trends, teams, uh, important behaviors that are important in business, or uh, and also in military as well? I, I looked at um, I looked at some some elite military teams. Um, I looked at some um, top performers in medicine. So I looked at sport, business, medicine, and military. The idea was to see 
was there a correlation between the types of behaviors across successful organizations across four different um, sectors? And, and there was. And, um, you know, so I went to see, you know, Dyson. I went to visit the Dyson factory and I spent three days there. I went to Rolex in Switzerland, which for me was a, you know, obviously a brand famous for luxury product, but um, passing the, the, the test of time. I went to Toyota in Japan and spent a week in the, on the Toyota factory floor um, speaking to people from the cleaners to the um, CFO. I went to Florida to the IMG Tennis Academy in Florida. I went to Man United. I went to Wigan Warriors, who were the best team in rugby league back in 2010. Um, I stopped off in Sydney, the Sydney Swans, and just won the AFL. Yeah, so uh, Just Eat, I went to see Just Eat, who were just starting off as a, as a, as a tech tech startup obviously in the delivery of food business but tiny compared to where they are now and I just wanted to see what kind of strategy they had and uh, what kind of culture they had and it was brilliant you know and, and and the reality is my 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 findings were that everybody can do things differently everybody can have their own unique strategy etc but you know there's common areas or behaviors that ran across the successful organizations that I looked at. And again, I would say it has to be sustainable success. So Man United, who we're going to talk, I know you're a fan of, a big fan of, I mean, you know, they were at the top of the, the curve when I, when I visited them in, in, in 2010. You know, they'd just been, um, I think they won uh, 36 trophies or whatever over Ferguson's reign. Been a lot of stability with one manager. And obviously, you know, when I started Sport United, when, when Kevin Moran got sent off in 86, that's when I started supporting them. You know, I had a, they, had a, they had a lot of peer. Okay, they won a couple of cups, but they weren't. It wasn't sustainable success like like we, we they had under Ferguson his last his last ten years. But yes, you know, they had a period or whatever in the seventies where they were obviously dominant. So, like what I would say is, you know, you're not going to have. It's very rare in elite or competitive areas where a company can just year on year grow 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 they will have setbacks they will have rebuilding periods but what i wanted by what i meant by sustainable success was have they got the core values have they got the principles in place to rebound to come back you know what i mean so for example man city you've obviously man city uh, and i'm watching the documentary now all or nothing about pep and i know it's i watched it's a bit outdated but you know they they now have unbelievable facilities. They have unbelievable backing financially. They obviously have a brilliant coach. Um, they always put a lot of money into their, into their academy. But the test of time will be in 25, 30 years' time, you know, have they had success? Or is it just that start, you know, and have they been able to, to, to create such a good environment, a good culture, that you're always going to believe that they'll bounce back? And that's, that's something that I was fascinated by. Um, and United, I mean, you know, just bit about United. When I visited United, I had four days in my United. I saw Alex Ferguson every day, but I didn't have an audience with him every day. My audience was blocked in for the for the last day, uh, where I was having a coffee in his office um, after lunch, and, and I had a half an hour, or maybe I think I had twenty minutes with him. End up being half an hour because he's an incredibly busy man. But like he was there all the time, but he wasn't. He wasn't going around the place like checking. Are they lifting the weights? They say they're lifting. Are they? Are they doing the rehab? He had, you know, he had everybody so well drilled in his organization and high levels of trust that the coaches would go out and run the sessions, you know. Um, but also what he had was he had players who were unbelievably driven to succeed and set really high standards. And I suppose I was just observing for two or three days. I was in the physio room, I was in team meetings, I was in the canteen. 
and you know the impression I got was this was a team who were preparing like they were underdogs. They were preparing like they were number two, but they were actually number one, which is hard to do because most teams when they get to number one, they they pull up to a certain extent, or they, they cut corners and they stop they stop doing the extras or, or going to uh, the final uh, the extra mile. So. I was like, what am I going to ask um, Sir Alex Ferguson? And basically I said, look, I'm going to ask him, how do you keep this team, you know, so driven, so focused um, that year on year they're there, thereabouts. But more importantly, they train like they're, they're chasing something that they've never had before. And he said, uh, he said and it's a story, but Sir Alex grew up in a rough part of, of Glasgow, um, a tenement house. Gowan is the name of the, um, the suburb. And, that house, like it's actually been demolished where the road he lived on has been demolished now. But uh, if you grew up on that road, there was an 80% chance you're going to work in the, in the docks because that's where the most employment was in, in Glasgow at the time. And his dad, his dad worked in a shipyard and his dad came home from work one day and he was having dinner with, with the boys. Sir Alex was around 15 and his dad told a story around how as he's walking home from work that day, he saw three men building, building a wall. He went in said to the first guy, what do you do? And the guy said, oh, I'm a bricklayer. He said to the second guy, what do you do? And he goes, oh, I earn 80 pound a week. And he said to the third guy, what do you do? And he said, I'm building a building that in 50 years time, my son or, grand, or, or daughter can bring my grandson or granddaughter and say, your father built that. And he said, he told that story to the, the class of 92. He told a story every preseason, but he said the class of 92 bought into it better than, than any other group. And then the likes of Keane and Irwin and, you know, um, Cantona, etc. The players he brought in also wanted to leave a legacy and uh, and create something that a period of history in Man United that when they retire, which they have now, or when they come back to Old Trafford in 40, 50 years' time, or their son goes back or daughter goes back to Old Trafford in 50 years' time, people talk about that generation. And I think, you know, it's a very simple message, but he was able to keep it simple. The thing about him was, you know, he had... He had old school values and, and, um, and he came across as gruff and rough and with the press and stuff, but very high level emotional intelligence and also able to make the hard decisions um, when a player wasn't performing anymore. And we saw that with, you know, with, with Beckham and Keane um, and Stam, etc. So, yeah, he very, very successful manager and someone who I, I, it was very good to me over those four days and, and I really appreciate it. Obviously, you were there to do a job on your thesis but as a fan me yeah. Alex Ferguson it must have been it must have been yeah. surreal I know you were there to do a job but at the same time you're a fan too like that must have been amazing oh, it, was, it was unbelievable yeah absolutely and, and to be honest I was quite lucky so I played for Sale Sharks which are based in Manchester in, I, after I left Connacht I went to Sale Sharks in Manchester for two years so I was living in Manchester as a 22 year old Man United fan and a lot of the sponsors we had were also sponsors of uh, of Man United so regularly be tickets coming in for a European game on a Tuesday night you know to go to a box and, and I, you know, I'd be top of the queue and, and also where we trained in Carrington was actually next door to, to Man United so you know we got to know some of the players around like on nights out and just there was a bit of a link between the, the rugby and, 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 the, and, the, and the football so it was uh, it was phenomenal and obviously you know there was uh, you know there was a big Irish connection uh, there historically between you know Frank Stapleton and um, and then obviously when I was there it was it was Dennis and, and Roy and there was a young young lad who's passed away actually from Cork Lee Miller yeah Lee Miller and there was, there was a few Irish lads in the academy 
Um, it's obviously a little bit different now in terms of team. But yeah, for, as a guy, as a guy who was a United fan for a long time, to get into that environment was 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 phenomenal. You mentioned the the notion of sustained success. I spoke to Brian McClear once, and he said that the morning after they won the FA Cup, the players were in the dressing room. They came in on a high. He said Alex Ferguson came in and addressed the squad, and he said, "Look, we've won the FA Cup, but next year we have to win things again. I want to climb that mountain again." Yeah. And he looked around the dressing room and he said, if any of you aren't willing to climb the mountain again with me, he goes, there's the door. We'll find a new club. I don't think it's any coincidence that modern businesses are using uh, the, the template of Sir Alex Ferguson, if you like, in terms of leadership, in terms of sustained success. A lot of businesses now actually study Sir Alex Ferguson and his leadership traits. Yeah, and, and I have listened to some lectures. He, he, he's part of the London Business School leadership module. Um, and look at it, as I said to you, it sounds so simple and it sounds obvious. But what you need is, is, is someone at the top of the organization who's able to flick that switch and get everybody back on task, you know, for the next job. And he had an unbelievable um, ability to do that. Obviously, look, at, you know, he's, he lived it, you know, he was first in, last out. Um, uh, absolutely passionate about, about winning. And again, like, I mean, let's be honest. You know, there was, there was people calling for his head at certain times before they, they turned a yeah. corner. I have to admire the board for for being able to see he was doing the right the right things. He just needed time, and uh, and eventually then it become, he has a success which allows him to ride out the the poor results for a short period. But uh, yeah, it's um, it's amazing. It's amazing. But you do need and players. The reality is, you know, players will will respond to someone who has that that drive and wants more and more because, you know, and especially the good ones because they realize that their career is short and, you know, they need to attack the next challenge quickly because, you know, what's, what's done is done, you know. And also, I think a lot of elite athletes, they get over a win pretty quickly. It's the losses that, that hurt you more for longer, you know. So, yeah, McClare was a big fan. I was a big fan of McClare's. Uh, show, show my age, you know. <laughs> and that concludes part one of the Bernard Jackman podcast. Next week, I will upload part two. Thanks for listening to Red Devil Talk. We hope you enjoyed our latest episode and don't forget you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Red Devil Talk. If you listen on an Apple device, please consider leaving a review and a five-star rating. If you have any questions or comments or want more information on Red Devil Talk podcasts, you can get in touch via email at reddevilTalkMedia at gmail.com. The Red Devil Talk podcasts are a Red Devil Talk Media production.